Would you turn in your New Testament to the book of Titus, the short little book of Titus. And if you're in Acts, keep turning right, keep going down the street, passing all of those little epistles, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, stop. That's where you want to stop. If you find Philemon and Hebrews, <clears throat> go left. Tonight is the first study in what will no doubt turn out to be a lengthy study in the book of Titus. Though it's only 46 verses, three short chapters, it's a wealth of information. And Thursday night is is the night I like to take certain books, and uh, especially books like this that are small and concise, and put them under the microscope and examine them by uncovering stone upon stone, truth upon truth, applying it reapplying it over to our lives and finding all that God has for it, for us as we go through it. So tonight we're in Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at the first four or five verses, but we'll make it through part of verse 1 and verse 4. That's where we're at tonight. Uh, As we have a word of prayer and we begin this study, it's now time to settle down, keep your seats. Moving around distracts others and we know that you would not want that stigma of being the one who disrupted somebody from receiving what God had for them. So we ask you to abide by that rule. We'll be here till, well, it's a little after 8. We'll release you a little bit before 9, and uh, you'll be able to be on your way. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have in this country where we can have a freedom of expression, and we can meet freely like this, the freedom of assembly. And we pray, Lord, that we would continually take advantage of it, not just because we have the freedom as Americans, but especially as believers, that we would not be like so many who who forsake the assembling of themselves together, as is the manner of some. Lord, help us to be constantly reaffirming the encouragement of the saints, and more and more as we see the day approaching. And so, Father, tonight we open up our hearts and submit ourselves to those truths that you would share with us. We thank you for the many blessings that you have given to us, the blessings that you have given in this fellowship, especially the blessing of one another, the friendships that we have tonight just in this room. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for the way you're using the radio station in this community. And even right now, as this study is being broadcast live, we pray that it would feed and instruct and bless even many more people than those of us who have gathered tonight. We thank you for these opportunities. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to say, as we introduced Robert and as Frank spoke a little bit, that pastoring is, to me, the greatest possible occupation anybody could ever have. And and I think that anybody who loves whatever God called them to do feels that way, no matter if they're a pastor or evangelist or if they're a secretary somewhere, they work in any capacity, knowing that God called them to that place is an exciting place. It's something that I really wanted to do for a long time. And when I finally got to do it, that's what it felt like. I get to do this. I really get to do this. What a blast. It's thrilling. There were other occupations that I was looking at that were stimulating and exciting. And yet, I felt that pastoring 
being in the ministry full-time as something that would affect people for eternity rather than just in a temporary kind of capacity. And I'm sure that Paul felt the same way about his particular ministry. Paul the Apostle was called as sort of a pastor slash evangelist. And the passion for souls and the passion for teaching drove him from Jerusalem into Antioch and up through uh, Asia Minor and up through parts of Greece, Macedonia, and even into Rome. He had a passion for what God has called him to do. And we have evidence of that because we have so much of the New Testament that's written by him, about him and by him. He's written so many letters. And we come now upon what we call the pastoral letters of Paul the Apostle. The pastoral letters are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And what we mean by that is Paul is writing to fellow people in the ministry on a personal level. He's written, in some cases, to large assemblies. The church at Rome, the book of Romans, the church at Corinth, 1 and 2 Corinthians. The church at Thessalonica, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But here he gets very personal with individuals. Instead of a whole group, he's speaking to Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus both of whom were protégés of Paul and went out to start individual works. And what's great about reading anybody's letters, besides Paul's or anybody's, is you get sort of the way they think and the way they really feel about things. You get their heart. And that's probably why we feel, so many of us, like we know Paul the Apostle personally. Because if you want to think about marriage and you want to find out, you know, what Paul thinks about it. You read his letters, and if you were to meet Paul, you'd say, you know, listen, I'm going to ask you this question, Paul, about marriage, but I I think I already know what you're going to say, because I've read your letters, or about the person of Jesus Christ. I feel like I know you, Paul. And in these letters, these pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we get a first-hand look at the very heart and the mind of of Paul the Apostle. And so because of that, we should read Titus with a personal mindset. Instead of something that's written to everyone at large, though it's for every one of us, with a personal mindset. In fact, I would say we ought to read all of the Bible that way. Even Soren Kierkegaard said that the Bible is a love letter written to man with our personal address on it. And we ought to look at the Bible that way. We ought to examine it. We ought to look at context and language. But it should always be done with the application of what is God speaking to me. This is a personal letter for me. Now, whenever Paul wrote letters, don't picture him sitting in his study with all of his books, his computer on, his secretaries running around, and he's in deep thought and very quiet while he's gathering all of his thoughts to write this thing. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Usually he was addressing an immediate situation that had arisen with an individual or with a church. And as he heard about it, even sometimes in a prison, he would get up, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and pen the response to that immediate situation. And so it is here with also the book of Titus. One of the features of Titus and actually all of the pastoral epistles, all three of them, is leadership. And I think it was great that we introduced these two pastors, one that has gone out, one that is going out tonight, and it segues right into 
our study in Titus because Titus prominently has as its feature leadership within the church. And it shows how Paul the Apostle would not hoard leadership, but he loved to cultivate leadership in others. He'd pass it on. He wasn't intimidated by young Timothy. He wasn't intimidated by Titus, who had lots of drive and energy and giftedness. He wanted to get underneath them and push them up higher, further, to see them excel, to see them become good leaders. And so he discipled them, and then eventually he set them out. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's true that many churches have leaders within them who are very intimidated by the thought of any other people within the church being a leader. Seeing other people in the church who have a gift of teaching or evangelism or administration can intimidate those who are insecure in their calling. And their reaction often is to hoard, to keep at bay anyone who would contend with them or anyone who would want to come in and Minister to the body. After all, I want people to see how great I am. And that's always unfortunate. It robs the church of their ability to discover their gifts and use their gifts. A leader who is a godly leader seeks as a divine talent scout those who have gifts in certain areas and seeks to push them up and out and see them excel. And Paul was like that. He's a great example of a godly man who loved to see other people develop around him. Now, the Bible is littered with negative examples. In the book of 3 John, we have a character by the name of Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence. He wouldn't let anybody else come into his church who was a leader, and he wouldn't let any of his church members receive any other leaders. This guy was just selfish. Going back to the Old Testament, the first king of Israel is, again, another classic example of somebody who was selfish in leadership as contrasted to Paul the Apostle. Remember Saul, as soon as he saw David getting all of the accolades of men, became very self-centered and sought to kill David, especially when that song was sung by the women to make it worse after the battle. The lyrics of the song were, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. Now, it didn't set too well with Saul because he was so self-centered. All he could think about and be consumed with is how do I get rid of the competition? So he sought on many occasions to kill David. Another example of what not to do, but an example of eventually what to do, is with Moses. Do you remember Moses? A very good leader, a very godly leader, and a humble leader. But... He wanted at first to dominate rather than delegate. That was his problem. And his father-in-law was visiting him one day, hanging out inside the tent. And it's kind of as as if Moses said, Jethro, just stay in the tent. Watch this. And he went out. And from morning till night, he started counseling all the people single-handedly, hearing their problems, counseling with them, praying with them, and instructing them. Came back in the evening, whooped. expecting Jethro to pat him on the back and say, well done, man, you've done a great job. Instead of that, Jethro said, the thing that you are doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear everybody else out who has to listen to you all day. 
What you ought to do is get a whole bunch of other people who can listen to what the people's needs are, minister to the people, and you hear the very difficult cases yourself, and you teach and instruct the people. He followed Jethro's leadership, and out of that emerged the 120 elders, which eventually became known as the Sanhedrin at the time of Christ. These were elders, leaders, who had helped Moses in his ministry. Now, when we first started the church in Albuquerque, I did everything because there weren't many people. There were four of us. And even when there were 20 of us and there were up to 200 of us, I was still having, I had a full-time job with 200 people in the church. I printed the bulletin. I answered the phones. I counseled the people. I kept the books. I made the deposits. I studied for the Bible studies. I led the worship. I did that at first only because I had to do it, but I was always on the lookout to find people who were better than I was. And they came very quickly. (laughs) Musicians emerged who just loved to lead people in worship. They had a knack for it. So I brought them along and taught them some of the songs, and they got so much better at them. And now, if I'm lucky and I ask long enough, the band will let me kind of play with them sometimes. They'll turn me down a little bit, but... (laughs) I get a kick out of just being able to do it with them. But they're so much better at it than I could ever be. And there are those in counseling who are so much better than I am. Though people say, I've got to counsel with you. They'll meet with me once, meet with the other guys and go, he's right. These guys are much better than he is at this one-on-one counseling. Now, Paul had many co-laborers. You can't miss that point. As you read the New Testament, you find names like Silas, Epaphras, Onesiphorus, Barnabas, and a host of other people that Paul went out with as a team. He was not what many people picture the apostle as, this lone ranger type of apostle. And a lot of people see Paul as this independent pioneer who went out apart from everybody else and just, you know, bit the bullet, pioneered a ministry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Oh, he was a pioneer, all right. But he always had a team of people with him. And I think that's important in any ministry, in any endeavor, that you do stuff with people. Jesus sent them out two by two. And even Jesus Christ, by the way, who could be very independent. After all, he's God in human flesh. He didn't need any help. He had 12 men that he communicated truth with and sent them out being very patient with them, and gave them the mantle of world evangelism. Paul the Apostle followed that as well. And it brings out the truth of 1 Corinthians 12, where it says, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Now, all that by way of introduction, we want to read tonight the first four verses and then go back and get a couple of nuggets. And this book, these verses are just packed full of beautiful truths. And uh, so many truths that it would probably bear taking notes and going over them. But let's read the first few verses together. Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested His Word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, 
a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. And the first four verses tell us about Paul's co-worker, Titus, Paul's correspondence, that is the reason for his letter, Paul's character, and Paul's calling. And we only have time to cover the first two points tonight because there's so much, and we want to cover, as we said, every little stone and get all that we can out of it. We want to look, first of all, at Paul's co-worker tonight. That's the two things we're going to examine in our remaining time together, Paul's co-worker and Paul's correspondence, or who was Titus and why was the letter written. You know, it always helps to read any letter, or for that matter, any book, to ask a basic question. Who wrote this thing? And why did they write it? And who did they write it to? And I tell you why it's important to find out a little bit about that. Because a lot of times you start reading a book and you find yourself with that odd feeling, sort of like walking into a movie when it's already started. Kind of wondering, what's going on here? It always helps to have the background, doesn't it? And so we find a letter with Titus's name on it. But we ask, who was this guy? Where did he come from? And uh, we're blessed by the Lord to have a record through many scriptures that give us a beautiful cameo picture of the kind of person Titus was, which helps us realize why Paul would send him, verse 5, to Crete to set in order the things that are lacking and to ordain elders in every city. His name, first of all, is thought to mean honorable. They think it's from a Latin derivative, though we're uncertain exactly where it came from, but the Greek is Titus, or Titus, we say, and his name means honorable, and he was very honorable indeed. Uh, first off, he was a Greek believer. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 tells us that. He was a believing Greek. Now, we don't know how he got saved, but I'm going to make a guess. My guess is that Paul the Apostle, as zealous as he was, he had so many converts who kind of turned into leaders that I bet he was one of the first Gentile converts of Paul the Apostle. And the reason I say that is because of verse 4. It says, To Titus, a true son in our common faith. It could be that as a spiritual father birthed this spiritual son through sharing the gospel with him, that Titus sort of came on board as part of Paul's ministry. But he was a Greek believer. Now Paul, early on in his ministry, took Titus back to Jerusalem. Remember back in Acts when he came to Jerusalem? After his conversion, but the church sort of shied away from him because they thought he was that persecutor who was going to kill them. He came back to the church in Jerusalem to let them know that God had called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, not the Jews. Now that wrecked havoc. Because some of them thought, no, the gospel's not going to go to the Gentiles. It's only for Jewish people. Those are God's elect. What better person could you bring than Titus? He's exhibit A. He's a Gentile who was converted, who loved God intensely. So he brought Titus with him. In fact, would you turn with me to the book of Galatians? Let's go back. Look at Galatians chapter 1. I love the sound of turning Bible pages. We should record that. I could listen to that during the day. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 13, 
the Apostle records his experiences with Titus. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him fifteen days, and I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God and me. Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of the false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So that's sort of the beginning of where Titus and Paul met. No doubt he was a son in the faith, led him to Christ, used him as exhibit A in Jerusalem to show the church that the gospel can go to Gentiles. The second thing we ought to notice about this character is that he went on a special assignment. In fact, several special assignments, missions, that Paul the Apostle gave to him because he was of mature character. Mark that in your mind. He was of mature character. It seemed that a special bond of affection between Paul and Titus developed, so much so that Titus was given responsibility by Paul in some of the most strategic areas of his ministry. I don't think Paul would have done that unless he saw a level of maturity that God had put within him. Would you turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm having you turn there because Titus' name is mentioned nine times in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 7. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 5. There's a lot that could be said, but let's just kind of get right into it. Verse 5, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Now, you may have been in that situation. You may have felt stressed and pushed and pulled, maybe even at Christmas time, with all of the responsibilities and running around you had to do, but... Paul was out on a mission from God here, and he felt those emotions. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolations which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. 
Now look over at verse 13. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. And some Texan pointed out that this proves that Paul was from Texas by the way he worded that last part. I kind of doubt that. All things considered. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting in Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. There it is again. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Now skip over to uh, chapter 8 and uh, look at verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but the first gave themselves to the Lord. They first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. That's the grace of giving. And Titus was sent to the Corinthians to give the letter, probably, 1 Corinthians to them, as well as receive an offering from them. Now, you know why this is amazing? Is because 1 Corinthians was a letter filled with rebuke and instruction to a wayward church who had floundered in so many areas. And this church uh, letter was filled with admonition and rebuke. And that's a hard job to give any young minister. Hey, go take care of this church. Take this letter to them and then take an offering for the poor. No doubt he knew that Titus could handle it. That he would not run from it or shirk the responsibility, but that he could meet the task. And then uh, there's several more verses that we're going to look at in just a moment. But here's a man who went to a church known for its carnality. And yet, he was mature enough to take the responsibility. Now look down in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. We see that Titus had a shepherd's heart. Not only was he mature, not only was he a Greek believer who was early with Paul in his ministry, but the man had a shepherd's heart. In verse 16, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. In other words, I didn't have to force this kid into going. He volunteered for the mission. That says something. And it says that he has the same diligent care. In other words, the same way that I care for you, this man had care. And the Greek word is spude, which means a diligent, intense compassion for a group of people. That was Titus, a shepherd's heart from the very beginning. Because of that, Paul had given to Titus full endorsement. And you know, I think that any time a pastor can be assured that whoever he puts in the pulpit or ministers to this group or asks on staff as an assistant pastor or asks to minister in any capacity, it's because he believes that person has a love and a care for the sheep. He has a shepherd's heart. And the mark of a true shepherd is that he loves sheep. He tends sheep. Like Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Paul told the elders of the church of Ephesus, feed the flock of God which is among you. 
So Titus was a true shepherd. By the way, it's not easy loving sheep. You know that. Uh, All of us get messy sometimes as sheep. It's easy to love the good shepherd. Oh, it's no problem loving Jesus. But his sheep, it's hard to love God's people. And of all the churches to love, the Corinthians. But Titus had that same loving affection as Paul. Confucius was asked by one of his followers, what were the essentials, according to Confucius, for good government? Confucius said there are three. Sufficient food, sufficient weapons, and third, confidence of the common people. His followers said, okay, okay. If you had to dispense with one of those qualities, which would it be? Confucius said weapons. Leaving you food and confidence of the people in the leadership. The disciple then said, okay, if you had to dispense of the other quality and leave one remaining, would you take away food or confidence? He said, absolutely, take away food. And here's his rationale. Quote, food. For from of old, hunger has always been the lot of men. But a people that no longer trusts its rulers is lost indeed. What a commentary on our country. For that matter, the world. The world, by and large, has lost confidence in any kind of leadership. We're like sheep having no shepherd. And Titus restored vision and confidence in leadership because he was one who led by example. Now look over at chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. We get a fourth mark of Titus. We're all painting a picture here, so you know what kind of a person was sent to this island of Crete. The fourth mark of this man is that he was a man of integrity. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours... But you, I'm not after your money. I'm not after anything except you. You're the ones that I'm concerned with. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Now, Paul loved them and wouldn't take advantage over them and sent Titus because he knew that Titus wouldn't take advantage of them. He was a man of integrity. He was there for the right reasons. He could be trusted. You know, I've thought about Titus in Corinth. And knowing the kind of people that the Corinthians were, they were disgruntled with leadership, they had divorce problems, they had uh, marital problems, they had all sorts of bickerings and fightings. It may have seemed easy for Titus to sort of fall in line with the thinking of the Corinthians and sort of be swayed by them. It would seem that easily they could have turned Titus's heart against Paul and have them side with them, But he wouldn't do that. He kept in step, it says here, with the heart of the apostle. Harry Truman was once commenting on leadership. And he talked about this. He said, uh, I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he had taken a pole in Egypt. What would Jesus Christ have preached if he had taken a pole 
in Israel? Where would the Reformation have gone if Martin Luther had taken a poll in Europe? It isn't the polls or public opinion of the moment that counts. It is right and wrong and leadership with men with fortitude, honesty, and a belief in the right that makes epics in the history of the world. I think Titus embodied that. He was there to do what was right. He wasn't swayed by the Corinthians. He didn't take a poll. He came to deliver a letter, be Paul's messenger, to keep in step with the mind of Paul, and he wasn't swayed. He was a man of integrity. The final thing, the fifth thing we want to notice about him, comes from our study in the book of Titus. So let's turn back to Titus chapter 1. And we find that he was a qualified troubleshooter and administrator. That's where we come to verse 5 of chapter 1. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Can you understand now why Paul chose Titus to go to Crete? Listen, Crete was a very difficult place for ministry. In fact, they had a reputation. We're going to read about it in just a few moments, and we'll get to it actually in a few weeks. Paul had been to Crete. Paul wasn't there for long. He said, I left you in Crete. In other words, I started something, and I wanted you to finish it, to administrate it, to troubleshoot the problems. Now, this is what I like about this truth. Paul was gifted as an evangelist. He was gifted as a teacher. It seemed, however, that Titus had a knack for organizing problems, administrating people, and helping them work together, which freed Paul the Apostle to devote his time to preaching the Word. So Paul could go into an area, preach the Gospel. You get a bunch of people together. What do you do with them? Get Titus in there. Or if it's Ephesus, put Timothy in there. But get someone who can pick up where Paul leaves off, giving Paul all of the time necessary to focus the energies to the very gifts that God had called him to. That makes effective church growth and effective leadership. It does. That's a pattern, by the way, we find in Acts chapter 6, remember? There was a dispute between the Greeks and the Hellenists. The women were bickering at who would get the daily ministration or the food at the table. They brought the problem before the apostles. We demand to see Peter. They saw the apostles. And Peter said, what are you looking at us for? We're not going to leave the Word of God and serve tables. Choose seven men from among yourselves, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. We'll lay our hands on them. They'll do the job. But we must continually give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They kept priorities. Titus allowed Timothy to do that by virtue of his gifts. He allowed him, Paul the Apostle, to minister. Now later on, let's just sneak ahead. Look at chapter 3 of Titus. We see that when Titus was to have finished his work on Crete, of organizing leadership of the church and setting things in order, that he was to rejoin Paul the Apostle. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis. That's over on the western shore of Greece, coastal city. For I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that 
they may lack nothing. So when you're all done, come and join me. But this is something that you're called to do for this period of time. Now, the last we hear of Titus is in 2 Timothy, a later letter of Paul the Apostle. And he fades off of the pages of the Bible with this last phrase, Titus has departed for Dalmatia, which is northern country above Greece on the coast. So from beginning to end, from Jerusalem to Dalmatia, we see a very energetic, a very qualified, a very mature person who had vision to see churches grow. And God used them. It's been said that true leaders are like beans in a jar of peas. You might want to try this as an experiment sometime. Get peas in a jar, put beans in the jar, shake it around. The beans will come up to the top. The peas will go down to the bottom by virtue of their weight, specific gravity, and so forth. And true godly leaders are like those beans. You can shake them up, but you can never keep them down. They'll always rise to the top and rise to those positions of leadership. Titus was like that in almost every area uh, of church history from Jerusalem to Dalmatia. We see him very, very faithful. All right, let's go back now to Titus. Or we're, actually, we haven't left it, have we? We've returned. We've seen Paul's co-worker, that's Titus. Now let's talk about Paul's correspondence. That is this letter itself. Why was it written? And again, it's always good to find out not only who wrote it and to whom it was written, but why was it written? What's the occasion? Was Paul bored? Did Paul want a postcard from Crete? No, he had a specific reason in mind in writing this particular letter. And it always helps to find out why. In fact, you ought to find that out when you read any book of the Bible. Why was it written? First of all, Crete is an island. If you have a map in the back of your Bible, you might want to look. And notice that it's off the mainland of Greece. It's 170 miles from east to west. It's long and it's narrow. It's only 35 miles from north to south at its widest point. So it's a very long island. And it was populated with many cities. In fact, Homer called it the land of many cities. And that was the place that he was sent to. How did the gospel get there? You say, well, Paul the Apostle probably brought it. Well, that's true. We know he came there. But there's an interesting verse of Scripture, and when I call it to your memory, I think you go, oh, yes, now I remember. We know that Cretans were at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church and thousands of people were saved. They had come for Pentecost. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 11... Among the other peoples that were there, Cretans and Arabs. And they said, we hear them, the apostles, speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Later on down in that chapter, it says in verse 41, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. What that means is, is that some of those Cretans who were present and saw that, and if some of them were converted, they could have been the ones to bring the gospel back to Crete. So that when Paul got there, there was already rumblings of a work of God going on. That's exciting to me. And I'll tell you why it's exciting. There's a lesson right there in that truth about world evangelism. The church is called to go to all the world. And I love it when people say, I'm going to go be a missionary in this part of the world or that part of the world. I'm excited for that because that's a mandate of the gospel. But did you know that the world 
will come to your front door? Do you know that in our universities right now in America, some of the brightest international students are going to school? And now these are the cream of the crop in many areas, in many uh, of these universities, the cream of the crop of the nations that they come from. They're bright, they've excelled, they've gotten the resources to come to this far land of America and be educated on American soil. Many of them are Hindus, many of them are Muslims, many of them are animistic. And they're here in town. And how I would love to see missions groups reach out to the international students, invite them over for dinner, get some kind of a group here in town. Because they're here. And suppose one of these bright young international students, sort of like on the day of Pentecost, would get a vision, being touched by God with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They could go back to their country. Indigenous, knowing the culture, knowing the language, knowing how to reach them. And great things could be done by you planting the seed here on your soil and their hearts. Now, finishing up here in Paul's letter, Paul's correspondence, there's at least three reasons why he wrote this letter to Titus. Number one, to encourage him. Now, everybody needs encouragement, right? Whenever you're doing something and things don't work out, you'd love somebody to come and put his arm around you and say, you're going to make it. Keep going. It's all right. And Titus had to follow in the footsteps of Paul. That's a tough act to follow. I started it. They've heard my preaching. See ya. Now I want you to take over for me. For you? Yeah, for you. I want you to set these people in order, ordain elders in every city. I bet that was sort of a frustrating position and he needed encouragement. There was a leadership vacuum. Obviously, we read that from verse 5. We need elders here. Whenever there's a leadership vacuum, people are aimless, and number two, false leaders come in. And that happened in this very place. False teachers came into Crete, and they started spewing off their legalistic garbage and bringing people into all sorts of erroneous thinking and into bondage, and they needed Titus's ministry. So this is to encourage Titus. There was a leadership vacuum. Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, we read, remember in... Chapter 9 of Matthew, he looked over the multitudes. And when he saw the crowds coming around Galilee to Jesus, it says that Jesus had compassion on them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And Titus was doing that, but it was a difficult task and he needed encouragement. And Paul wrote this letter, and I'm sure it came to him in the nick of time. If Titus was anything like Paul... He was getting discouraged because, you know, Paul was a type A personality. I'm convinced of that by reading the epistles. He was a go-getter. He just kept going. And he would run into brick walls and, bam, the Holy Spirit said no there, so I'll try it over here. Oh, I can't go there. Well, I'll just go there. He was very, very aggressive in his evangelism. If Titus was anything like Paul, then he was frustrated at this point. And I'll tell you why. Read down with me in verse uh, chapter 1. It says in verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped and who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, 
lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, this race had a reputation for being lazy. And and Paul says, it's true. So, imagine how frustrated Titus must have been in some of the situation he'd find himself on this island. Now, when any time anybody goes out to start a church, I've seen it in Robert's ministry, and we've seen it in Santa Fe, and in Colorado where we send people in different parts. When you go start a church, it's very exciting. And it seems to be a honeymoon period, but that sort of vanishes after a while, and problems set in, and new issues come up, and it gets very frustrating, and you need encouragement. And every year when we have pastors' conferences around the country, and we get groups of pastors together, sometimes thousands of them, the one thing they cry for is personal encouragement. And I can relate. When we came to New Mexico here, I left my job for a new job. I was single and now I'm married. In this, and this is all in, in two weeks' time. Uh, left my friends, trying to make new friends. Lived in a house by the beach, now live in an apartment over by San Mateo. And I had all of these radical changes that happened in my life in a space of two weeks. And if you were to measure those up with stress points, you know, I'd be going... There were times where I desperately needed encouragement. And God, as Titus comforted Paul, comforted me. And so this was also by Paul to comfort Titus. Secondly, it was written to endorse Titus. If he was there to raise up leadership and to set the church in order, no doubt he would have people who would say, Who gave you this authority, young man? Where's your seminary papers, dude? Who sent you out? He could say, Paul did. Prove it. Well, here's a letter from him. Paul to Titus, set in order these things that are lacking. Here's my credentials. It was to endorse them. It was like a pastoral reference. The third reason, and we'll end with this, is to direct Titus or to elaborate on what Paul had already told Titus. And briefly, let me give you an outline of this book. Here's the parameters. Here's the direction that Titus was to operate on on this island. He was to give to this group parameters for godly living and parameters for godly leaders. That's basically the outline. Live a godly life in the body of Christ for every church member and raise up godly leaders according to these standards. It's basically the outline of the entire book to give them parameters. You could call this book a concise guide for church order. It's very much a concise... It's like a a back pocket quick reference guide for problems that would come up in the church. Here's a few things that Titus addresses. Qualifications for leadership. A confrontation of sin and heresy. It spells out spiritual roles and obligations for believers in any church. It rehearses the magnificence of salvation by grace through faith. And finally, it tells believers how to live a godly life before a watching world. All of these in this book. How much time we got left? Well, we have ten minutes. Let me just peruse over those two main points of this book. First of all, in the direction that Paul gave to Titus, he sets out parameters for godly living. Look at verse 5, the beginning of it. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order. Mark that. Set in order things that are lacking. 
The word set in order is uh, two Greek words put together. Epi, dia, thoreo. comes from two words, epi, upon, or by, or at. And ortho, which we get orthodontics from. It means to straighten something or to place it erect. In Crete, these people's lives needed straightening up. They received minimal instruction when Paul had gone there or when the gospel first went there. And they needed somebody to straighten up their lives because many false teachers had come in. And so look at the first verse. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement, now watch this, of the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, truth should always lead a person to godly living. If it does not, something is wrong in the way they have assimilated that truth. Faith without works is dead. Truth leads to salvation, but it doesn't end there. Why do we think, oh, just we want to see people saved and that's the whole point? No, it's not the whole point. You bring them into faith, but then you grow them up to maturity. Truth leads to godliness and godly living. And the opening verse brings that out. A saved person should grow. Look down at verse 8. Look how many times he mentions this concept. Verse 8, he talks about an elder. Must be hospitable. And notice, a lover of what is good. Sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He speaks to older women. Saying, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Timothy himself is mentioned in chapter 2, verse 7. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. All of God's people are looked at in verse 14 of chapter 2 who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for good works. Then He broadens it sort of to all believers of all times, I think, in chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to all men. And then he closes up even with his closing salutation in chapter 3, verse 14. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. See how many times he mentions the concept of good works because godliness is produced by the truth. Truth should always lead to godly living. And so the direction to Titus. Teach these people about godliness that stems from the truth. And the second reason that it was given is is for leadership. The end of verse 5, the second part, and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. These fledgling believers needed role models. They needed elders. And the elders couldn't just be, hey, you know, you look kind of like an elder. How long have you been a Christian? A month? Oh, great, no problem. Uh, uh, Do you know John 3.16? Good enough. No, there had to be a standardized way of judging of who is qualified in leadership. And the first part of chapter 1 gives that to us. Now, Thomas Manahan, the founder of Domino's Pizza, this isn't a pizza joke, by the way. This is a true story. Started his company 
in the 1970s, around 1970. And he started it when it was in debt. Uh, the first few years it was in debt, and it didn't look like he was going to be able to pull it out. But from the early 70s to 1985, it rose to a $1, million, a $1 billion a year company in sales alone. And he was asked the secret to his success. Here was his response. Quote, I programmed everything for growth. And how did I plan for growth? Every day we develop people. People as the key to growth. Not special cheese, not a tasty crust, not fast delivery schedules, but people. People are the key to all effective leadership. So get the picture. Paul pushes Titus up into leadership. Titus is left in Crete. He's been a faithful man, and he's to find other elders and push them up into that position of leadership. And then he's going to join Paul later on. Isn't that a beautiful way of God working, using Paul, finding Titus? And Titus, did I say Timothy a couple times in the study tonight? If I did, I meant Titus. Um, except at the very beginning when we know that Timothy went to Ephesus. But for the most part, it's Titus. See, I, I kind of think in a lag. So uh, if I did that, forgive me. Anyway, we're off for a good start. We've learned about Paul's co-worker, Titus. Mature, Greek believer, shepherd's heart, ready to go at it, man of integrity, set in Crete to establish the church. And then Paul's correspondence, written to encourage, to endorse, and to direct Titus, to set parameters for godly living and for godly leaders. And next week, or next time when we get together, we'll look at uh, at least the next couple verses... And we'll look at Paul's credentials and Paul's callings as we finish out our outline. Before we pray, a couple of ways to make this personal, to apply this to our hearts. Number one, you ought to be committed to the singular goal of spiritual maturity. You know why? The more mature you become by assimilating God's truth, the Word of God and prayer, the more usable you are the more you ready yourself by the tools God has given you. I know it takes an anointing of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible says an awful lot about being diligent in these things. You make yourself available to the Holy Spirit to use, and I will guarantee you He will use you. If your aim is spiritual maturity, and by the way, other leaders are looking for mature people who are actively busy, volunteering like this guy was, ready to serve, God will use you. Secondly, Add to that desire for growth and maturity a compassion for God's people, a love for God's people, not just for the work of the ministry, but for the sheep that are involved in the ministry. Now, that's not easy, especially in a day and age when we have enough of our own problems. I can't have any time to minister to other people. It's awfully hard to get out of that mindset of, I have problems, I have needs, I'm busy. But cultivate by God's grace a compassion and a care for God's people. A perspective like Jesus had to seek and save those who are lost. And finally, thirdly, pray for God to raise up more spiritual leaders like Titus to go out, who can set things in order around the world, who can plant and pioneer churches that God's work might continue to be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the amazing amount of ground we've been able to cover in this short period of time. How we've seen the life of Titus, this young Greek believer who is early 
attached to Paul's ministry. A faithful man that Paul could entrust a big chunk of responsibility to. A man of integrity, a man of care and compassion for your people. And a man who had unique administrative and organizational capabilities that made him fit for this work in Crete. Then we thank you, Father, for the letter that was written to him because we can benefit from it and we can see a pattern of good works and godly leadership. We pray, Father, for both of those things in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.